episode seven of The Modern Extractor. This podcast focuses on the processes, equipment, and science found inside a cannabis extraction laboratory. I'm your host, Jason Showered, and I work professionally in the cannabis extraction field. Here in season one, we're focusing on ethanol extraction and post-processing, with each episode digging deep into a particular stage in that process. The shows are released in an order that follows the workflow through a lab as material makes its way from cultivar to concentrate. Last week, we had Greg Arias of Concentrated Science and Aftermath Labs on the show. He helped us demystify decarboxylation on a molecular level. We talked a bit about the differences between decarbing THC versus CBD, and I talked through my decarb SOPs. Moving on to this week's show, let's catch back up with our material on its way through the lab. So far, we've performed a cold ethanol extraction in a centrifuge. We cold filtered the resulting micella through a lenticular filter. We ran that micella through a falling film evaporator to separate the oil and the ethanol. And we decarboxylated the crude oil we separated, converting the acidic forms of the cannabinoids into THC or CBD. This week, we make our way to the most complicated machine in the lab, the wiped film evaporator. Technically, we'll be talking about a rolled film evaporator today, which is the best style of wiped film for use in the cannabis sector. Joining us today to discuss rolled film distillation is John Hart, founder of Chemtech Services. John and his team currently have a ton of equipment out there in the field. You'll find their machines installed at the premier cannabis processing laboratories throughout the country and all over the world. They're always working on developing new equipment for our industry and interesting R&D projects, but I'll let John tell you all about that. Without any further ado, John Hart, welcome to The Modern Extractor. Oh, thank you very much, Jason. Happy to be uh, participating. Absolutely. Glad to have you on today. Where, uh, where are you calling in from? Calling in from our headquarters in uh, Lockport, Illinois. Lockport's a shub- suburb of uh, Chicago. Right on. All right. What's the weather like out there right now? We have an amazingly sunny day here. Uh, unfortunately, it's really cold. It's about 20 degrees Fahrenheit. All right. I'm in, uh, in Los Angeles now. It's got, got a little rain, rain recently, but, uh, we could use it. Uh, (laughs) anyway, uh, what, what was your path like to starting Chemtech? Okay. So I'd spent most of my career working for a couple of major chemical companies and, um, I did a lot of things. I mean, I did mergers and acquisitions. Uh, I was an engineer on the technical side, so I was also building, uh, or let's say, um, managing the construction of chemical plants and additions to chemical plants around the world. And I, you know, in the early part of my career, I spent about 60% of my time outside of the United States. Um, in the nature of my job was such that I actually earned some pretty significant uh, dollars for the companies I was working for. So uh, at some point in my career, I decided, gee, maybe I should uh, just strike out on my own and see if I can earn a little more money myself than uh, than I was getting paid uh, as salary. What uh, At what point did you decide it was time to, uh, you know, just go ahead and, and jump for it? You know, I think I was uh, about 50 years old, um, maybe maybe 51 or 52, but that's uh, that's about the point in time I, I uh, did that. And uh, Chemtech has been around for 15 years, so that gives you a little bit of a time perspective. So were you already in distillation when you were traveling around doing your, doing your other jobs? Um, you know, the chemical industry is, is such that uh, the... 
technologies I was working with uh, did uh, did utilize uh, distillation methods. And I mean, uh, actually, my uh, first major job at uh, Ashland Chemical, Ashland was a uh, subsidiary of Ashland Oil. So you can imagine distillation is a big part of processing oil. Yep, certainly is. So if that's how it all began, give us a, give us a little bit of a bird's eye view of what Chemtech is today. Okay, so um, I typically regard Chemtech as being two divisions. Uh, one division is the, uh, the design and fabrication of uh, uh, our core technology, which is uh, distillation systems. But we also uh, do other technologies, especially pilot plants for chemical companies, as, as may re- be required. Uh, the other uh, division is our toll processing of chemicals division. And um, we have a lot of really major clients. I mean, I would say pretty much Fortune 200 uh, companies. We distill some really sophisticated stuff. Okay, so what uh, what industries do you do you typically serve? You know, historically we were very uh, petroleum, petrochemical, specialty chemical uh, oriented. Um, in uh, more recent years, obviously the uh, the uh, hemp and cannabis folks discovered that uh, our high vacuum distillation equipment could be really useful for uh, separating the cannabinoids from uh, the other riffraff molecules in uh, in the extracted oils. I can certainly attest to that. I've used your machines and I, I absolutely love them. Uh, I'll get into what, what you offer in a moment here, but uh, you've kind of brought up a great segue into the cannabis field. Uh, tell me about the moment that you realized that your equipment was being used to distill cannabis oil. Like, well, What was your initial reaction to that? You know, it, um, it kind of started when, uh, when a client out in uh, California actually uh, asked us if we could separate the CBD from a hemp oil that they were importing from Europe. And, you know, our, our reaction was, well, it's just another essential oil to us. And uh, uh, so we asked them to send us a sample. They sent us a sample. We processed it um, and sent the results back to them, the, the distillate and residue fractions. And they were pretty, they were pretty happy because we had definitely uh, separated and concentrated up the CBD. So I think Probably within uh, about six months of that exercise, they bought a two-stage uh, KD10 system from us, which they continue to operate out in the California area. Roughly about that same time, though, uh, another uh, California organization um, had called us and uh, was asking for quotations on some of our smaller uh, laboratory units. And we came to find out that they were distilling THC. Um, and, uh, they ended up buying a lot of our, uh, lab scale units because they had multiple locations. Also about that time, we, uh, we hooked up with, uh, uh, an outfit, uh, called Helderpad and, uh, Helderpad had a, uh, processing license in the, uh, state of, uh, Washington and, uh, they ultimately became our agent. They were operating one of our units. They liked it and, uh, became our agent and they've done a really good job selling our equipment and they continue to, uh, uh, to distill out in their uh, facilities in Seattle. That's great. So a lot of the players in this space are making equipment specifically targeted at the cannabis market. 
Well, others kind of fall into the fell into it category because you already had something you made that was a good fit. Uh, from what you've explained to us so far, uh, it seems like you were already in the game and then your equipment was just the right option for what uh, the folks in the cannabis industry needed. With that said, uh, what are you doing to, to keep the people that are targeting the, the cannabis field off of your heels? Are you, are you doing anything specific uh, to stay relevant and uh, hold your position? Yeah, I mean, we're, uh, we actively have about uh, six different R&D projects uh, that actually are associated with more novel methods of processing uh, cannabinoid uh, molecules. But in the meantime, we've obviously uh, embellished our uh, existing uh, offering to accommodate the, uh, the industry. I mean, for example, we introduced a um, some uh, decarboxylation uh, units into the industry a few years ago. Uh, we've also uh, introduced um, uh, specialty uh, ethanol distillation units. They're two-stage distillation uh, systems that will uh, allow the user to get his uh, ethanol content in the uh, in the final oil uh, down below a tenth of a percent. Um, and those obviously are peer-reviewed, so uh, uh, so they can past the scrutiny of the uh, regulators in the, uh, in the West coast uh, states. Um, but uh, like I said, we're, we're continuing to work on uh, things. I think one of the bigger uh, novelties we brought to the industry also was the introduction of the turbo molecular pump uh, into uh, uh, not only cannabis processing, but uh, short path distillation processing. Historically, the turbo molecular pump had been regarded as a little bit too fragile for uh, distillation operations, but our uh, primary supplier of vacuum equipment, uh, Liebold Vacuum, came to us and said, hey, we have a new design. We'd like you guys to test it because we think it's robust enough to use in distillation. So we actually uh, engaged in a testing program uh, that took longer than a year and worked very closely with uh, with Liebold to, uh, to develop uh, the proper setup for the use of that turbo molecular pump um, in in distillation, and I mean, just to give you an example, we were some of our early work was done with uh, distilling epoxy resins, which uh, are notoriously uh, uh, hard on the vacuum pumps. Um, but uh, it, it turned out the pump ended up uh, being pretty robust, and we introduced that into the industry. And absolutely, we were the first company to introduce uh, the turbo molecular pump. And the, I think in general, the uh, the folks in the uh, cannabis and hemp sectors like the turbo molecular pump. Like any piece, any piece of vacuum equipment, it's it's got its uh, pros and cons. But uh, we're big fans of the turbo pump. Yeah, I can I can certainly personally attest to the fact that you guys killed it on uh, you know R and Ding that 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 turbo i had a uh, a counterpart i used to work with that we would be constantly doing battle about how hard to run things because i wanted to go easy on that turbo and then uh i would i would leave for a couple of days and come back and i know that it got it got tortured so uh, we actually went so far as to take the system apart and look in there and you could see distillate built up on the blades of the turbo which was killing me uh but uh the thing just kept working so well done on your r&d yeah, no, it uh, it ended up being robust enough. I mean, we've also tried to get more focused on uh, uh, low temperature chillers and uh, and cold trap uh, technologies to to try and preclude the contaminants uh, condensing into the uh, into the uh, turbo pump. 
Yeah, that would be ideal. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, it is a constant battle. I mean, uh, uh, the 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 nature of the uh, the terpenoids in particular, uh, they're good carrier molecules for some of the heavier uh, or higher molecular weight. Uh, uh, molecules in uh, in oil extract and uh, these terpenoids are are really tough to condense in the cold trap. You have to get to extremely low temperatures to uh, to achieve that. Maybe maybe even as low as uh, minus one hundred degrees Celsius. But I mean, we we went into it with the knowledge that the uh, uh, the folks who were using liquid nitrogen cold traps were tremendously successful in keeping their vacuum systems clean. Mm-hmm. So, so we know if you get down to about uh, minus 120 C, uh, uh, you're, you're going to uh, be running clean vacuum equipment. All right. That's good info. We'll, we'll jump into that uh, in a little bit here when we get uh, to the technical section, but you, you piqued my interest on a couple of things that you mentioned, uh, specifically your, your ethanol recovery and your decarb units that you've released um, for that ethanol recovery. Is that, is that a system to recover all of the ethanol used in extraction, or is that specifically to to get the residual ethanol out of your crude oil? No, that's uh, that's to recover the ethanol that's being used for ethanol extraction. Oh, great! So all of it. Uh, yeah, all of it, all of it, okay. and uh, it. Uh, you know, unlike many of our competitors, we are using a really a uh, fairly powerful vacuum pump on the system. You know, having said that, we, we typically like to see our clients run that system uh, maybe around 200 millimeters of mercury, uh, whereas that vacuum pump will easily take them down to one millimeter of mercury. But um, at, at 200 millimeters, it, uh, it operates pretty well. And uh, when we designed the initial system, our, our target was uh, 50 liters per hour processing rate. And when we tested in our own facility, uh, we saw that the system uh, had so many uh, so many features that were overkill that we were able to run the system at 200 liters per uh, per hour. So it it's a robust system. Wow, that is fantastic! If, if somebody wants to look that up on your website, what do you call that one? It's a falling film slash rolled film uh, system, but it's probably indicated on the website uh, under ethanol uh, distillation. Okay. Uh, but it's it's a nifty little uh, little unit. I mean, little unit. It's it's a, being a two stage unit. It's a, uh, shall I say bigger than most of the falling film and rising film units that you see out there. But like I said, the intent was to get that ethanol content to a low enough level that we could process the oil uh, in in our short path units. So now from that stage, you mentioned decarb units. Do you do your units, is it a modular setup where you can uh, put your decarb unit after this ethanol recovery unit? Yeah, the, the decarb unit itself is a pretty independent unit with its own uh, uh, control enclosure. Um, the only thing that I would caution anybody about uh, that's dealing with both ethanol and, uh, and let's say the uh, deethylated uh oil is ethanol handling ethanol has to be done in a class one division two uh electrical environment which you know is essentially an explosion proof environment um so the decarb unit itself uh is not really made in an explosion proof uh fashion we can but you know again it's better to put your your decarb unit and your short path unit outside of your classified zone uh, and, you know, again, it's just, it's just a function of the, the equipment you use. For example, the turbo molecular pump, um, they don't make a class one division two version of the turbo molecular pump. 
Gotcha. Yeah, and it costs more money to build those uh, C1D2 zones anyway. So if you could keep that as small as possible, you're going to end up building your lab in a more efficient manner. Yeah, exactly. And if you've got open space and you've got one space in that open space designated C1D2, then I think the, uh, if I remember National Electric Code, uh, if you get 15 feet beyond the classified zone, uh, then you're outside the classified zone. So, you know, again, it's uh, distance uh, always helps when, uh, when it comes to uh, uh, potential of uh, flammable or explosive vapors. All right. Interesting. Uh, what's the best selling item that you sell into the cannabis market specifically out of your out of your offerings? Okay, so we sell a pretty broad spectrum of units, but uh, if I had to pick any one unit that seems to be a favorite, it would be the KD10 uh, unit, uh, either in the single stage or, or two stage version. But the single stage is a, is a real workhorse. It's um, very easy to use. It's, you know, everything is pretty much fully integrated into the skid. Uh, and uh, we find our customers really like that unit. All right. Yeah, I can, uh, I can agree with that one. I've seen them in use and had a chance to play with them. My original unit that I got from you guys was uh, a mini five that by the time, by the time we got done strapping extras onto it, it was almost a KD six. And then I've had a chance to play with, uh, with a a friendly labs KD 10 for a little while. And that thing's a fantastic unit. It's, it's, it's beautiful. I love it. Yeah, I mean, even uh, even our uh, uh, the the company that does our most of our installs out in California, they uh, they look at the KD10 and they've they've told me it's a pleasure to uh, install those units because they're so functional. Getting a little bit more into the uh, technical side of things here, um, I like to listen to podcasts kind of when my hands are full or I'm driving or riding a bike or just doing something where I can't watch video or look at pictures. And I think that's pretty common amongst most podcast listeners. So I try to cater to that audience. Um, What's going on inside your machines is certainly not easy to describe without the visual aids, but can you do your best to describe a KD-10 and what's happening inside that machine while it's distilling? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, uh, I frequently will describe the the operation inside the evaporator itself as a very, very low density fog or or cloud. So you've got this heating surface that's boiling off these molecules, uh, you know, pretty pretty rapidly. And uh, and then you've got a cooling surface, um, you know, basically uh, about an inch away from that heating surface. And that intermittent space is uh, is kind of a nebulae. Uh, it's it's uh, it's consisting of this fog of molecules, and the condensing element uh, will be condensing into the uh, the vapor into the liquid state, and that's that's creating um, a pressure drop that's encouraging all those molecules to flow towards the condenser, and then all ultimately uh, down into the evaporator. So, you know, you can just kind of picture yourself in, in a fog and, uh, and seeing that fog move in one direction and, uh, and uh, get into a clear zone uh, when, uh, when the uh, molecules condense. All right. Uh, you mentioned something on that, that that I found kind of interesting, which is the, um, the low pressure being created when those molecules recondense. Now, um, with my experience, the when when you have things evaporating, that's going to raise your vacuum level or create pressure. Uh, and then when they are being recondensed, that's going to lower it back down again. Now, uh, one of the big reasons that we do the terpene strips on these uh, on these machines is to make sure that 
our vacuum can get to a low enough level to where we don't have to expose too much heat moving forward to distill the cannabinoids. So that said, uh, when you're creating this pressure and then reducing that pressure by recondensing, uh, are, is it a zero-sum game there where you have reduced it by exactly the same amount that you have created? Or if there's stuff that doesn't get recondensed, have you effectively raised your pressure levels inside your machine? For sure. Um, if you aren't going to a low enough temperature to condense the materials, then then you are going to create more pressure than you would like. And uh, and that that's a phenomena that you see more um, in relation to a turpenoid strip, for example. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's a little challenging because if you look at the lighter terpenoids, uh, for example, uh, beta-myrcene is an example I of, often use. Uh, uh, beta-myrcene is a, is a wonderful uh, odor uh, terpene. It's got a boiling point of uh, uh, roughly 150 degrees Celsius, okay? Um, but if you're trying to run your evaporator at a, uh, uh, let's say, a level of uh, 0.005 uh, millimeters of mercury, which would be short short path level, uh, at that vacuum or absolute pressure, the uh, the boiling point of the uh, beta myrcene falls from 150 down to minus 50. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, so if your cold trap isn't operating somewhere below minus 50, uh, you're going to have a hard time uh, condensing that uh, that beta myrcene, and the thing, the thing uh, people also have to recognize is boiling point is just a reference on a curve. So there's a, an equation called the Antoine equation, uh, which is used to develop uh, what's called a partial pressure curve. And if you look at this partial pressure curve of, uh, of let's say, beta myrcene, or, you know, for the, that example, let's shift gears and, and think about the partial pressure curve of water. Because uh, this is a good illustration to recognize boiling point is just a reference point. So, you know, water boils at uh, uh, at 212 Fahrenheit, right? Or uh, let's say 202 if you're in Denver, Colorado. Uh, okay, so, um, uh, but the point is, in Los Angeles on a nice sunny day when the temperature may be 70 degrees Fahrenheit, a puddle of water will still evaporate. Mm-hmm. And that's because the partial pressure of water is such that some molecules will attain a high enough energy to jump into the vapor state. So that's why I say if if you're if the boiling point of beta myrcene at 0.005 millimeters of mercury is minus 50, you really need to be down to a level of about minus 100 degrees Celsius to truly get down to the point where uh, the partial pressure curve has no implication on, uh, on, on things. In other words, you're, you're condensing effectively virtually all of your vapor. Okay. Uh, along the lines of condensing effectively, um, I, I spend a lot of time reading on a lot of the forums. Um, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff posted that, uh, you know, some of these folks are, chemists some of these folks have just 
put the work in and know how to how to make things work right for them. So there's a lot of information out there. Not all of it is uh, correct and sometimes by design with all the secrecy in the industry. So th- what I've been kind of interested in lately is your delta T between your evaporator body wall and your condenser. So um, talk to me a little bit about what your ideal delta is there to get to get things to, to condense the way you want, to be able to, to make sure that you are condensing everything that you're evaporating and to make sure that, you know, you're, you're maintaining the, the pressures you're looking for inside of your machine. Okay. So the challenge here is there's really no fixed value for a, a Delta T. I mean, it's really a function of what's the composition of the material you're, you're trying to uh, distill. Okay. So if you're, if you're dealing with a, uh, an oil, that's predominantly uh, 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 cannabinoid-based oil, i.e. you've removed um, virtually all of your, your uh, terpenoids, okay? So let's say you might be running your evaporator 160 degrees Celsius. Uh, generally speaking, you're going to be running your condenser at uh, somewhere in, in this gap between 80C and 100C. Okay, and that that would be, let's say, at a vacuum level of, uh, again, five microns, 0.005 millimeters of mercury. So you've got uh, I'm saying 80 degrees might constitute the low point because you've got to stay above the melting point of the cannabinoids. And uh, so if you if you get below, let's say, uh, uh, 80 degrees C, uh, the viscosity associated with, you know, the can- cannabinoids on the, uh, on the condensing elements uh, starts to become an issue. So you generally want to stay above that, that melt point uh, condition. And the melt point is going to be somewhere around 50 to 60 degrees Celsius, the, uh, the theoretical melt point. So um, staying above 80 is, is pretty important. Uh, likewise, you don't want to go uh, uh, above 100 C, because if you if you're running your condenser hotter than 100 C, and you know you might be able to marginally uh, get it hotter than 100 C, but uh, the problem will become you aren't going to capture all your cannabinoids. You got to get those condensed. So you have to stay in a good zone uh, to to achieve uh, the proper level. A lot of our customers actually like to run at 100 C um, because they feel that gives them the the best. Uh, cannabinoid uh, uh, for the marketplace. Yeah, I'm certainly a fan of the uh, the hundred C. A uh, little tip of the hat here to uh, Breaking Dabs and his uh, hot condenser tech, which really changed the game quite a, quite a bit. He's uh, he's one of the fellows that, that contributes on the Future Forty Two Hundred forum, and uh, and really really did help everybody out a lot in the beginning because originally people were running their condenser uh, a lot lower. Um, and that was condensing, but then a lot of these, you know, viscous cannabinoids were getting stuck on this condenser and, and remaining in the, the hot evaporator body for way too long. So that, that increased temperature helps them evacuate the condenser, which I think is a big one. And then also allows you to, to really condense the, uh, the best quality cannabinoids, uh, with, with, with very little, uh, of anything that you don't want getting condensed on there. Yeah, I always try and encourage our customers to to plan their campaigns. And, you know, the best way to plan a campaign is to know your starting point, uh, the composition of your starting material. Um, 
you know, unfortunately, uh, I would say most of our customers don't have the uh, the the GC or HPLC equipment to uh, to define their their feed material, and they're they're kind of flying uh, by instruments. But um, yeah, I mean, a hundred degrees is is these days. I would say that's probably about the most co- common uh, condenser uh, temperature operating point. I will say if if I've done uh, a ineffective terp strip or if something possibly went a little bit awry in terp strip or I find myself with more remaining in my product than than I would like at that stage sometimes I'll kick my condenser up to 105 or 110 just to make sure that that I'm I'm blowing everything by uh, into the cold traps and not condensing any of the stuff that I don't want there if I find myself with with a, uh, a source material that is not where I wanted it to be originally yeah, no, that that's a reasonable approach, and and like I said, planning a campaign based on as much information you have uh, available to start it with is uh, is really important because uh, these the melt points uh, you need to know those, and you also need to keep track of of where the boiling point is of these various compounds. Uh, throughout the distillation process, and and you know again, recognizing boiling point is a uh, is a variable. It's a function of the uh, uh, of of temperature and pressure conditions. Uh, so you've you've definitely got to keep track of uh, of these issues. And I mean, just something as simple as setting the evaporator 160 uh, degrees Celsius. Um, the, you know, the, the boiling point of CBD is actually uh, 438 degrees Celsius. So it's the fact that you've got that high vacuum condition that's bringing that boiling point way, way down to uh, actually the boiling point uh, uh, ends up being about 134 degrees Celsius if you're running a vacuum level of uh, uh, 0.005 millimeters of mercury in conjunction with 160 uh, d- degree uh, evaporator. Yeah, I, I can't stress enough the importance of keeping your vacuum system healthy. There's a lot of folks out there that really punish their vacuum system in order to get more throughput and, and run faster and run harder and run hotter uh, because you can you can crank out more final product like that. But jeopardizing your vacuum system in the long run uh, is going to end up making you have a higher vacuum and making you have to run hotter and expose your your future material to to more temperature uh and thermal degradation and eventually going to slow you down anyway so it's you know it's really important to keep that vacuum system healthy yeah i mean for sure of uh, all of the components on the distillation unit i would say probably the vacuum uh, system uh, requires more maintenance than uh, than the other elements regular Things like regular oil changes are really, really helpful to uh, uh, to your vacuum pump. Absolutely, yeah. Every time I turp strip, I will do a flush. Uh, so basically, a double oil change, a flush, and then and the new oil in there, just to make sure that it is as healthy as possible and gets all those terpenes that made their way by the the condensers and the cold traps out of there. That's a good practice. Let's say your goal is to get absolutely everything out of the vapor stream before it goes into your vacuum system, and you're not trying to use your one of your two cold traps as a theoretical plate, but you just want to remove the maximum amount. Uh, is your best bet there then to just get both cold traps as absolutely as low as you can get them, or is there anything to be said for having staged temperatures to be able to more effectively remove more things from the vapor stream? 
Well, to some extent, that that depends on uh, you know what you're distilling. But if you're doing purely a uh, a terpenoid strip, and let's say you're trying to do that strip at an atmospheric equivalent uh, temperature, let let's say below 300 degrees uh, Celsius, then I would say run your cold traps, both of them as uh, as cold as possible. But we have to remember that that some of these high molecular weight terpenoids, um, they they will be uh, uh, solids at uh, uh, at cold temperatures. So um, off the top of my head, I can't remember uh, uh, the name of some of the high molecular weight terpenoids. Uh, uh, but uh, you could conceivably plug up your your condensing element on the first cold trap. If if you're getting some of these high molecular weight terpenoids that uh, that will condense and and they'll solidify. Okay, so that makes sense. Why uh, why you see a lot of staged uh, staged temperatures on these machines with the double trap? Yeah, I think a number of uh, clients have have. Uh, I think the terpenoid they've encountered is phytol, if uh, my memory serves me correctly. And uh, again, as I recall, phytol has a uh, uh, a very very high boiling point as a terpenoid. It's uh, it's above 300 degrees Celsius, and uh, and so conceivably a phytol molecule. I would I would expect to condense on a on a cold uh, uh, cold trap even even under high vacuum conditions. Gotcha. Yeah, with uh, with the gear that I was working with, um, I had the capabilities of getting trap number one down to minus forty and trap number two down to minus sixty. I would have liked to get it colder um, and uh, and possibly gone to the uh, the liquid nitrogen or, or or something to that effect. But really, minus forty, minus sixty was doing the trick for me. And then you know you're still going to end up having some blow by into your vacuum pump, um, but you know that's why you change the oil. Uh, it may not be a bad idea to mention here, if you're doing your terpene strip, making sure that your turbo is not between your vacuum pump and your system during that terpene strip really helps to not contaminate the turbo. Absolutely. And uh, on, uh, on virtually all of our systems uh, for the, uh, uh, the cannabis and hemp sector, um, we build in bypass valves. So you can bypass the turbo pump simply by adjusting your valves. All right. Well, that's a, that's a great, a great feature to have. Uh, I used to have to disassemble the thing and put it back together each time. And that's, that's never any fun. Um, as far as uh, moving on from there, let's talk about wipers versus rollers. I know a lot of your machines use rollers um, and some of the competitors that are out there use wipers. Uh, talk to me about the difference between that and why you've chosen to go that route for your stuff. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of our technology was kind of inherited uh, technology, and uh, the the predecessor, uh, well, Chem- Chemtech acquired the distillation business from UIC Inc., uh, another Joliet corporation. But UIC Inc. had actually acquired the uh, uh, the business and technology from Leibold Vacuum. Okay, so um, uh, we we tend to. Uh, follow the uh, the direction of uh, of the Leibold folks and they had actually had a patent on uh, wiper rollers um, as I recall I think that patent was uh, occurring like in the 1960 era um, and they had done you know really really significant testing uh, 
uh, in their facility to determine that the rollers seem to be a more effective uh, methodology of creating the thin film. And they like the rollers because um, very, very easy maintenance. Uh, the rotational speed of the wiper basket controlled uh, the, the centrifugal force of the rollers uh, against the uh, evaporator wall, thereby controlling the, uh, the film thickness, which again is something you want to do. And, uh, and the other aspect that people tend to forget about is the fact that the rollers uh, will kind of uh, take on the same temperature as the evaporator or very close therein. And so they, they operate as, a, as an extended um, evaporator surface. Uh, as well as creating some uh, some agitation within the evaporator, uh, so rollers we feel are going to accommodate uh, about ninety percent of the applications that we typically look at. Uh, and you know, certainly, I haven't seen anything in the uh, cannabis field that uh, that a roller wouldn't uh, perform better than a uh, than a blade. Yeah, I I didn't even consider that uh, extended surface area. That's that's huge. That's that's a that's a big deal. Yeah, no, absolutely, and uh, and like I said, I mean, they're it's very easy to change rollers, um, uh, and they're and they're really robust, particularly in the in the cannabis field. I mean, if you're distilling epoxy resins, they aren't. Uh, you have to pay a little more attention, but um, uh, definitely the uh, uh, other than fixed blade uh, type of uh, wiper systems. Um, the other wiper systems that have hinged blades, they're, they're kind of high maintenance items and you never know if a hinge is really doing the job it's supposed to. Yeah. I worked for, with a, uh, with a wiper for, for a couple of years. Um, and it was, it was not fun. You actually have to get in there, take the whole evaporator body apart, take those wipers out cause they'll break. Um, I believe, I don't, is it PTFE that they're typically made of or some, some type of a, a, a plastic, um, and these things will break. They will uh, recede if you accident if you accidentally don't filter your material well enough, and you're you're wiping some, uh, you know, some filtration media or uh, anything that could be in your oil uh, due to a lack of filtration. Uh, wiping them out, that around in there, you can actually grind off a little bit of these wipers, uh, and then your your thin film gets a little bit thicker. Uh, as they recede. And I, I love the idea of the rollers because that centrifugal force will always bring them right out to the wall. Yeah. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm a firm believer in the, uh, in the rollers. Like I said, they'll, they'll accommodate uh, the vast majority of the uh, uh, distillation uh, circumstances. Um, but, you know, again, we've, we've used, used wipers, uh, fixed wipers, uh, well, actually adjustable wipers uh, on some really, really nasty crude products where we've built uh, pilot plants for, uh, you know, for our uh, petroleum clients for the sole purpose of uh, distilling stuff you wouldn't think you'd be able to distill. And in, in that case, the viscosity is so high that, uh, that you simply have to use a, uh, a wiper blade uh, to move the material. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, so you, you heard it here, folks, cannabis, cannabis applications. It's all about that roller. <laughs> there you um, go. Uh, moving on from there, we mentioned turbos, uh, earlier today, the turbo molecular pump, uh, from light bulb prior to that. And, and still with a lot of the, the Chinese equipment that's out there, uh, you're finding a lot of diffusion pumps. Um, I'd like to pick apart a little bit what the difference is and how these different tools work and why you may use one over the other. 
Yeah, sure. Um, and again, I mean, we kind of crossed that bridge uh, five or six years ago uh, because the units that we were selling, some of the initial units in the cannabis sector actually had uh, oil diffusion pumps uh, because we hadn't yet uh, approved the uh, the use of the turbo pump. Um, and the oil diffusion pump, it, it can be a very reliable uh, pump, but you have to remember that that's a, a wet pump as opposed to the turbo molecular pump is a dry pump. So being a wet pump, it, it uses a fluid. And if the fluid becomes contaminated, um, then just like, uh, just like your uh, rotary vein pump, uh, you've got to change the fluid. And so we typically find... Uh, uh, found that the clients using the oil diffusion pump, uh, you know, they'd, they'd have to frequently change the oil uh, as it becomes uh, contaminated. Uh, one interesting aspect of the uh, uh, oil diffusion pump is uh, it, it it has no moving parts. So that's a good thing. Um, uh, and, and the way it works is it, uh, there's a heater at the bottom of the oil uh the oil diffusion pump that that heats the oil uh, above the boiling point of the uh, uh, of the oil, and so the oil is kind of going up. You know, you might think of it like a volcano. It's going up this uh, this tube uh, where it hits some uh, deflectors uh, that create a a very uniform conical. Uh, molecular stream uh, and the molecules are, are they're, they're coming out of this conical area at, uh, at a uh, supersonic speed. So, you know, it's a little bit like an umbrella with uh, rain falling so heavy, it's creating a curtain all around the uh, uh, outs- outside of the umbrella. Um, but if, if the uh, elements that, that create this curtain, if they get a little bit plugged up from contaminants, uh, then, then the effectiveness of that curtain will diminish. And also, you have to remember that the outside of the oil diffusion pump does have to be cooled. Uh, and the smaller oil diffusion pumps are, uh, are air-cooled, but the larger oil diffusion pumps generally have a uh, cooling coils around the outside, which recondenses these, uh, these hot vapors uh, so that they can undergo that cycle once again. The thing... Uh, that I think most of our customers appreciate the turbo molecular pump uh, for is the fact that it spools up so fast. Um, if you're using an oil diffusion pump uh, on a distillation unit, it may take between 15 and 60 minutes before you get to the low vacuum level that you want to get to. I mean, uh, remember, you've got to get this oil heated up to a very, very hot state. Uh, it's going to do some degassing during that period. Um, and then when it finally kicks on, you will start to see the temperature go down. But like I said, that that's probably going to take at least 15 minutes and it may take as long as 60 minutes to achieve the vacuum you want. Whereas with a turbo molecular pump, you're going to spool that puppy up with within, usually it's within two minutes. So both of those can have their issues. One with the turbo pump, um, you could have issues with, uh, with with too high of a vacuum and too many molecules hitting that pump. And then with the uh, with the diffusion pumps, there there can be issues with not having your vacuum low enough when you when you fire those up as well. Uh, can you can you break those down for us? 
Yeah, I mean, both of these pumps, you want to have a fairly low vacuum, but certainly the oil diffusion pump is a little bit more sensitive to uh, to achieving that uh, that low vacuum. Uh, let, let me kind of go back a moment to your comments on the turbo pump. Uh, that's the, the, the very reason that we built the bypass system into the turbo is to make it really easy for the customers to protect that turbo. So if they're experiencing scenario uh, where uh, there's potential for molecules contaminating the turbo pump, that's when they want to uh, uh, you know, close the valve to the turbo, open the valve to the, uh, to the backing pump so that they protect that pump. So what happens inside that turbo? Let's say that you don't have the correct uh, conditions, the correct vacuum conditions, and you fire that turbo up when there is not a deep enough vacuum uh, in your system. What actually happens? Why doesn't that work well with the turbo? You know, it's it's just not going to be able to increase the vacuum level that you want to increase it to. But I will say that the turbo is actually a really robust pump, and it's going to be very forgiving, uh, whereas the oil diffusion pump isn't nearly as forgiving. So if you turn on your, your turbo pump at, uh, uh, let's say, a less than optimal vacuum, I mean, I'm trying to think, they do have an interlock there in the turbo pump that may not allow it to uh, to come on. But, you know, turbo pumps in industry in general uh, are, are sometimes used, uh, you know, like a, a uh, uh, let's say a GC mass spec uh, uses a turbo pump. And, uh, you know, some of the smaller GC mass specs, as I recall, don't don't actually have backing pumps. Uh, for the turbo pump. The larger ones certainly do. Our laboratory model has a, uh, a backing pump, but it also has a turbo molecular pump. So turbos are capable of a lot of things. And you might see, uh, picture the inside of that turbo pump as, as being a little bit like a jet engine with all of these uh, rotor and stator blades that, uh, that are used to, uh, uh, to, to in, increase that pressure drop between the, uh, the front of the turbo pump and the, and the uh, uh, discharge of the turbo pump. But they're, they're really robust pumps. Yeah, I can't agree more. Uh, definitely, in my mind, turbo hands down over a diff pump uh, if you if you have the choice out there. Um, moving moving along from vacuum and uh, into system design here for some of your machines. So far, we've touched on the idea of multi stage machines, but we uh, we've been primarily talking about single stage machines. So um, that said, uh, why? Why would one use a multi-stage machine? Can you give us the rundown of of of, of how you would approach uh, distilling cannabis with with a multi-stage? Yeah, I would. Um, if if I were doing it, I would always use a a multiple-stage machine because we tend to think of uh, distilling these extracted oils. Uh, you're, you're kind of dealing with three groups of molecules. Um, you've got your terpenoids, you've got your cannabinoids, and you've also got the uh, triglycerides and waxes. Okay, so uh, the first stage of that that machine would be dedicated to separating the, the terpenoids. Or, you know, if you're using a single stage machine, you're going to do three passes, but with a, th- uh, a three stage machine, you do one pass, you keep your products in the, uh, in the liquid state throughout the process and uh, and what you're what you're collecting 
off of the distillate on the third stage is, is probably going to be the product you're taking to market. So we're talking about removing terpenoids on the first stage uh, or first pass. The second stage would be dedicated to uh, separating the cannabinoids from the triglycerides and waxes. So your distillate would be a cannabinoid-rich distillate. And, uh, and that third stage is kind of a polishing stage where you're trying to further concentrate your cannabinoids uh, up up to you know in the in the folks with uh, dealing with THC typically are reaching ninety five percent plus in in terms of the purity of their uh, uh, of their their concentrated distillate. But I'd always you know like at Chemtech we have uh, uh, we have three distillation units and they're all three stage units because that's going to be the most versatile. And the amount of handling you're going to do uh, in a single stage is 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 considerable, especially if if the uh, let's say the cannabinoids are are solidifying in uh, in a container that has to be remelted and recharged back into a single stage. Oh yeah, I can attest to that. I that's how I got my start, and uh, it is a headache, and there's plenty of waste, and it is uh, it is is less than fun. Uh, but you know, that's, that's the nature of the game when you have a one stage machine and, uh, it's a heck of a lot better than having a, a little desktop, uh, short path machine. So, you know, count your blessings, right? Yeah. And if you're in a GMP environment, uh, you know, a multiple stage system is definitely the way to go. Absolutely. Uh, you've, you peaked a bunch of interesting questions for me while you were describing that. Um, I guess. One, we'll start with uh, the configuration of what feeds into what stage. So what you just described was a uh, terpenoid strip happening on the first stage. Then moving on to that, you're separating your distillate from your waxes and triglycerides. Now, from that point, if you go over into the third stage, and uh, let's say that you don't want to repolish your distillate but instead you want that third stage to rerun your residue from stage two can you easily configure it to to have it do that yeah most of the systems that we're building right now that are multiple stage systems on the uh, downstream of the first stage and downstream of the second stage uh, we have them piped uh, so there are valves in the system uh, so what what do I mean by that? I mean that uh, on the first stage, downstream of the pumps uh, for residue and distillate, uh, you have three-way valves that will allow you to send either the distillate or the residue to the second stage. And the third, the uh, the same would apply on on the second to third stage. You can set your uh, uh, your valves so that you can send either the residue or distillate to the third stage. But we've also found that uh, different customers of ours have uh, uh, different philosophies. I mean, we had one one client uh, that was very, very effective in the industry. Uh, they were doing THC, and he wanted to pull a light distillate on both the second and the third stage. Uh, so um, he was doing exactly what you indicated. He, uh, the, the residue from the second stage went over to the third stage, uh, and he was pulling distillate off both the second and third stages. That was a THC-rich distillate. And he felt uh, that that gave him the highest concentration that he could get to market with uh, as quick as possible. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of times people will rerun their residue. Um, and, and I've always found that I spent more time rerunning my residue than I would spend rerunning my distillate. Um, if I feel like if you, if you do everything up into that point correctly, you can get away with a one pass on your distillate pretty regularly. And I was hitting, you know, 99% total cannabinoids very regularly just with the, without a polish pass. So that's why I'm more interested in, in putting that distillate or the residue back through on that third stage. Yeah, I think that's certainly the uh, the case with the THC, where the the feed materials are, you know, very very rich in uh, in uh, in THC in the oil. Uh, maybe a little more problematic with CBD, where uh, where the CBD concentration in the oil isn't uh, uh, quite as high as it is on the THC side. Uh, but um, like I said, we're we try and build that selectivity into the equipment, so it's as easy as possible for the uh, for the customer to. Uh, switch back and forth as, as he may feel, uh, feel necessary. Great. I love it. Um, the more, more options, the better. Um, the next question that, that kind of popped up when you were describing that three-stage machine was uh, on the, the first pass of the uh, terpenoid removal. Um, oftentimes you're going to be, as we discussed earlier in the interview, sometimes you're going to be creating more pressure by evaporating those or vaporizing those terpenoids then you can uh, take out by recondensing those terpenoids, especially if they're blown through all the way to your cold traps. Um, that said, uh, do you ever run into problems with this affecting your vacuum and the rest of the system? Or do you have your own very specific vacuum systems for each stage? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good question because if you're doing a terpenoid strip, on the first stage uh, to avoid damaging your vacuum system. And incidentally, the typically we don't include a turbo molecular pump on the first stage because we realize that uh, that first stage is going to see a lot of light molecules and uh, uh, we'd, we'd prefer to just use a, a, a rotary vein pump uh, on that first stage. But I would also kind of uh, comment that Ideally, if you're doing a terpenoid strip, you want to stay in this range one to uh, ten millimeters of mercury. And again, it's it's got to do with your ability to condense those molecules. Because if you're running higher vacuums, uh, as I kind of alluded to earlier, you're going to have to be running your condenser again, cold trap, uh, at a lot lower temperature. So if you if you control that vacuum in in between this one to ten millimeter, or you know sometimes even higher. Uh, you're going to make sure that you protect your vacuum equipment and you're able to uh, condense your, uh, your terpenoids. Uh, and the system uh, comes equipped with bleed valves, so you can bleed air into uh, your vacuum system and actually purposely destroy vacuum mm -hmm. uh, so that you get to a good vacuum level for uh, uh, terpenoid strips. And you know, ter terpenoids are relatively easy to distill, and uh, we don't we don't worry too much about the uh, uh, the pressure drop, other than the fact that we we don't want to achieve too high a vacuum if we're doing that terpenoid strip. Okay. Um, the uh, the other question I had regarding the various stages is uh, again specific to that first stage. Uh, on your machines, is there still the internal condenser that runs right up the center of the evaporator body in addition to the external condenser 
or is the external condenser the only one used to to collect the the distilled product? Okay, let let me let me make a few general comments here. Um, we've we manufacture systems that have uh, conventional uh, wiped film evaporators with external condensers and cold traps, uh, as well as systems that that contain uh, short path evaporators on the first stage, which has the internal condenser. Okay, but what we found out in the in the cannabis uh, sector is that if we uh, uh, Having a, a wiped film with an external condenser, i.e. no internal condenser, uh, was a little bit risky. Uh, and I say risky because you couldn't assure that the high molecular uh, boiling point terpenoids would be removed, like, like Phytol, okay? Um, and so the only way to absolutely ensure that you could remove these high boiling point terpenoids was to put a short path evaporator on the first stage. Again, I'm, I'm saying you still want to control very carefully your uh, uh, the pressure you operate the first stage at. And, and if we knew, you know, if your client knew that he didn't have any of the heavy molecular weight terpenoids, then I would say, yeah, he'd be an ideal candidate for the, uh, the wipe film with the external condenser. Um, because the, the advantage therein is that the uh, condenser surface area in that case can uh, is typically going to be five times greater than the surface area of an internal condenser. So you get a lot more condensing surface area and your likelihood of condensing your terpenoids and protecting your vacuum system is much greater. But, you know, again, I mean, it's just a, it's just a function of uh, building a general purpose machine that can accommodate the worst conditions those conditions being uh, being able to uh, uh, knock down uh, or, or distill uh, on the first stage uh, molecules like the phytol, which does have a very, very high molecular weight and boiling point. Okay. Thank you for breaking that one down for us. Um, just a, uh, you know, to wrap things up a little bit here, what, what are you personally most excited about in regard to the future of the industry and your equipment being used in it? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question because we've got a number of different research projects. Um, some some I can talk about, some I can't talk about because we're hoping to uh, to get some patents. But we are working on uh, on some patented products that we think will uh, uh, significantly reduce the uh, the entry level capital uh, for the industry if if we're successful in these projects. Um, so we're right on the cusp of, uh, of uh, uh, applying for one particular patent. But we're also looking at uh, industry-sensitive things like, um, you know, the, uh, the CBD guys have a real problem with residual THC levels in, uh, in concentrated CBD. So we're looking at a couple of different methods uh, in, in relation to uh, derivatizing that uh, that THC to convert it to C C CBN or, or uh, maybe some other byproduct. And uh, in, in that regard, we're using a couple uh, different techniques, uh, you know, in, including uh, uh, fixed bed uh, tubular reactors uh, that would be continuous reacting uh, uh, 
uh, products. So there's a lot of interesting things that we're looking at there. Um, and, you know, I, uh, essentially we've got a couple of engineers that, uh, uh, that are almost fully dedicated to these R and D projects. So we're hoping to, uh, to see some interesting stuff, but, you know, also trying to, uh, to work on some of the more conventional, uh, methodology that the industry already has. I mean, for example, uh, the the freezing methodology used to make uh, CBD isolates. We're trying to see if we can improve that process and and uh, make it a more continuous process. Uh, uh, but you know, all all these things uh, they they uh, it takes time and and equipment. And you know, fortunately, we're pretty good at designing equipment. So uh, and and we have good you know our our own chemical laboratory. We're equipped to. Uh, to measure terpenoids and uh, and cannabinoids in uh, in our GC GC mass spec and uh, HPLC equipment. That's great. Yeah, you find uh, you find plenty of these people that that are in a, in a similar situation to you guys, where you already had equipment that worked well for the industry. This industry started buying it. There's plenty of people that were in that scenario that just cashed in on it and said, "Great, we've got more customers." So I always love hearing. Like when you guys embrace it and start innovating for it, that, I mean, that's, that, that makes my heart happy. Yeah. I mean, because a lot of the uh, work that we've historically done has been the uh, design of specialty pilot plants that, that may or may not have included uh, distillation elements. Um, It, uh, it gives us perhaps a little bit broader overview of the uh, uh, chemical process uh, side of things. Um, and, you know, again, that's, that's where most of our R&D efforts are, uh, are geared right now in, into uh, utilizing our, our uh, process design uh, competence. Well, that's fantastic. If, uh, if, if people want to get a hold of you to purchase uh, some equipment or see if, if your equipment will work well for their scenario, uh, what's the best way they can reach out? Um, either by email, uh, and the website has uh, Chemtech Services website, which is uh, www.chemtechservicesinc.com, uh, has has an area where they can reach out. But I'm usually pretty good at uh, email, and uh, and I also take a lot of uh, uh, telephone calls. I mean, it's not unusual for me to be the last one to leave the office, uh, <laughs> so I get and you know. California time is a little different from Chicago time. So, uh, so I get a lot of the late calls, uh, where somebody has a problem and I put on my tech service ad. <laughs> well, that's the story of any good founder. Right. Right. John Hart. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was great to have you and pick your brain on all this, uh, fun technical stuff. Yeah. A lot of fun. I enjoyed it. And, uh, hopefully, uh, uh, your, uh, listening clientele will, uh, will enjoy, uh, hearing uh some of the some of the podcasts maybe i got a little bit boring on some aspects but uh anyway that's uh, uh that, that's the problem <laughs> that's what this show is designed for yep this show is designed for people that actually want to hear all of this weird dry boring stuff there, so there you go uh, there you go <laughs> all right well thank you sir uh we'll uh we'll talk to you soon i hope okay great thanks jason all right thanks again to john for joining us today He certainly knows his way around designing some fantastic processing and distillation equipment. If you want to get a hold of John or the rest of the team over at Chemtech to see which of their machines is best suited for your operation, you can reach out via email, info at chemtechservicesinc.com. That's info at C-H-E-M-T-E-C-H servicesinc.com. Or get a hold of them by telephone, 815-838-4800. 
there's always someone full of knowledge and a willingness to help you out on the other end of the line. As always, if you want to hear about something specific on this show, let me know. Email me, jason at modernextractor.com. Make sure to follow the show on Instagram at the underscore modern underscore extractor. If you guys like the show, please subscribe and give us a rating. The more subscribers and better ratings we get, the better guests I can book for you here in the future. Stay tuned for next week. It's the episode we've all been waiting for. All the hard work that went into getting us this far in the process will finally pay off and we'll be able to make some sellable product. Time to crank out some nice goldies with our guest, Jay Horton. Jay's the founder of Genovations and also the man that gave me my first push down this distillation rabbit hole. Jay can often be found flying around the world, installing and training on Chemtech systems, as well as consulting for almost anything you could want to do in a cannabis lab. He's an absolute veteran to the industry, and we'll get deep into the SOPs of cannabinoid distillation, including the different approaches to distilling CBD versus THC. I've really been waiting for this one. A big thanks goes out to Isado Venegas for handling business on the show's social media. Thanks again to everybody for tuning into The Modern Extractor. New episodes are out every Tuesday. I'm Jason Showered. Let's talk soon. Thank you.